Tonight I'd like to look at one segment of what Stephen has been talking about this morning. It's the area of contact, feeling tone, and reaction or response. But first I want to remind all of us once again that when we talk about these different facets or aspects of our experience, we're almost sort of pretending that there are these different things or different bits and pieces inside the mind. And of course, that's not the way it is. What we're talking about is that one experience, one experience every moment. It could be one experience of sensation, and then the next experience is a thought about it, and then the next experience a reaction towards it, and then the next experience more of that sensation, and so on. So there is different experiences, but it's one whole experience after the other. And each one of them is made up of all these aspects or parts or qualities. The object, the contact, the feeling tone, the knowing of it. And yet the whole thing is each time just one hit, so to speak. Not different pieces, even though that's how we talk about it. So, what is it that we do experience? When we look closely, we find a flood of events happening on, I could say, on a number of channels. This flood of object or experience, or data of sight, sounds, emotion, thoughts, and so forth arises constantly as an unceasing flow, which we somehow then organize and sort out and interpret, making it into what we call reality or real life, outer and inner. And we could say this experience arises through six channels, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and the mind and psyche. The eye, the seeing, the ear, the hearing, smelling, tasting, touch sensation, and the sixth one, the thinking, imagining, and having emotions and moods come up. Sometimes in Tonka paintings of the Twelve Links, that is shown as a house with six windows. And really, if we look at our entire life's experience, it's always within those. It's always going to be one of those six kinds of experience. Given this human condition, 
through those organs, through those channels, if you like, contact will happen. It will unavoidably happen, whether we like it or not. Try not to hear that. Unless we plug our ears or unless we're deep asleep, we're going to hear it. Hearing will take place and experience arises. To see life is that kind of contact, that kind of relationship that's ongoing. Experience is relatedness, contact at every moment. Eyes open and we're not asleep. Seeing takes place, must take place. Bright red of a rose or the purple colors of the sunset or the dark of the night. A thought arises in the conscious mind and thinking takes place, or an image comes up. Imagery, face, we remember a thought, I wonder what's for dinner. An emotion is produced, joy or anger takes place. We put honey on our tongue, sweetness, taste, inevitably takes place. And it starts the moment we wake up in the morning. It's this bell, right? Because bing, bing, and then the next thought comes, oh God, what is this? And it goes on and on and on and on until we fall asleep. Sort of, when you really have had it, then we somehow manage to turn off, or it turns off by itself. 10.30 or... 12.30, it's enough. And it's ongoing. One after the other, sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts and sights and sounds and tastes and smells and sights and sounds. If you really look at it, it's those six, six things ongoing. measured thousands of contacts per second and I heard that the mind filters out most of it down to 200 per second and it's still a lot to be mindful of isn't it so we have this event happening in every moment and I think it could be discussed whether those data come from outside and sort of come in and then hit consciousness inside or whether maybe it all happens within one big mind and part of it plays consciousness and part of it plays the object or we could say it's dreamed up it doesn't really matter so much however we want to explain or see this it's a very fact of our life that this is happening. Seeing, hearing, tasting, thinking, emotional experience. And I, each one 
everyone arises with a feeling tone, with a hedonic tone, right? Is that it? Getting it. Pleasant, unpleasant, or in between, some sort of neutral, including that vast range from bliss to pain and agony, and most of the time, all the range is in between somewhere. That feeling tone, or Vedana, that's what's actually the experience, and in some text, the definition really really simply says that which experiences or the experiencer. It's that the texture of each experience, that which tastes each experience perhaps. And it seems to be the all important fact of our life. This is around which everything turns, right? Somehow the reason and motive and aim of most of our preoccupation, mostly getting more of the pleasant ones and getting less, hopefully less, of the unpleasant ones. So this experience is the flow, that flow of experience is the raw material of life. And we organize it according to our skills and conditions and habits into my life. And of course that organizing and interpreting is immediate. It goes on almost simultaneously all the time and it shapes the experience. To get a more overall or more general sense of the experience, that pleasant or in between or unpleasant, I'd like to mention the eight worldly dharmas. It's also called eight worldly winds sometimes. It's a Buddhist title to describe pleasure and pain, bad reputation or fame, success and failure, praise and blame. It's sort of a little like saying pleasure and pain, but showing more of the different aspects it can take. They seem to be part of our life almost constantly in very small, not so significant ways or in big, important ways. Just as the wind blows from the various directions as it pleases, so do these eight conditions arise in our lives. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes 
it's painful, whether we like it or not. No matter how busy we get in our lives, trying to change it, to control it, to manipulate it, to keep it going the right way, it still tends to be sometimes pleasant and sometimes painful. And we have tried everything in life, with relationships, with jobs, with property, and so forth. And then we started to try with meditation. Perhaps if we get the meditation right, then it is always going to be pleasant. Good luck. No matter whether we're good meditators or not, good business people, good doctors or nurses or teachers or not, sometimes people will think highly of us and sometimes people will put us down. Sometimes people will tell us how lovely we are, how pretty or how warm and how intelligent and how wonderful. And sometimes they tell us how stupid and hopeless and gross and how cold we are. It's interesting to reflect on the fact that even the Buddha had enemies. He's a perfect being. He had people who tried to ruin his reputation. There are all kinds of schemes, that he was actually even exposed to physical aggression on some occasions, once or twice. And there are sutras where he asked one of his monks to give the talk because he was experiencing some back pain and felt like laying down and resting. It's part of what life is all about, how life unfolds. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes painful. Our mind will sometimes do what we want it to do. Be peaceful, concentrated, clear, and we'll say, this is a good meditation. In fact, it's perhaps just a pleasant one. That's what we think meditation should be like. Well, next time it won't. We'll experience the multiple hindrance attack, where we're not only restless, but we're restless and sleepy and full of doubt and needy and upset all at the same time. I don't know if you've experienced that one. And it can be the same in relationships, in work, and all the rest. It's bound to happen. It's part of life's experience. We'll continue to experience that endless flow of pleasant, unpleasant, or in-between experience. In interview questions, actually, I noticed that Quite an amount of, quite a number of the questions, I don't know, maybe 60-80%, is if I would put it in simple, very simple terms, it's saying, 
um, I have this problem. Uh, it's unpleasant, and there's a whole context in which this arises. This and this and this is happening to me. It's unpleasant. What can I do to not for it to not be unpleasant? And usually, I don't know. There's no, <laughs> no, no way. So all I can say, I can talk about how to be with that. But it's interesting to see how, or, or the other half of the question, how can I make it pleasant? To be aware of that and how important this is. I mean, it seems sort of obvious, but I think it's worthwhile to just talk about it for a few minutes and, and really reflect on it. Also, spend time being aware of the different feeling tones throughout our meditation, throughout our day. Because so much of everything that's going on is about this. Maybe everything is about this. Maybe that's really all we're concerned. Look into that. It's definitely crucial to be aware and to understand that feeling tone, that Vedana, and our relationship to it, and how we relate to it, if we're interested in freedom. When we do that, we start to begin to notice our reaction. Start to see how we deal, how we respond to these various feeling tones. And I'm sure we're quite aware already that when it's pleasant, we like it, we want to keep it, we want to get more of it. And whether that's at lunchtime or whether we've had a good meditation and we come back and we think, okay, I think I got it this morning. I did it like this, and I sat like that, and I, my breath went like this, and if I just do it right, it's going to come again. When it's unpleasant, we dislike it, we want to avoid it, get rid of it, run away from it, do anything not to have it. And when it's in between, sort of neutral, we lose often interest, we become indifferent, become unaware of what's going on. Seeing this pattern of reaction or response to feeling tone is really one of the cruxes. Does crux has a plural in English? I'd say maybe it's the crux of meditation altogether. Maybe one or two other points that are equally important. Really where it hinges. And to tune in to that over and over again, and we can do it every moment of experience. We don't have to wait until something special happens. There are always these three feeling tones. And to see the reaction, not to jump in to change it, say, oh, I shouldn't react this way or I shouldn't react that way, but just to see and watch and observe it. It's so relevant 
and there is so much to see and to learn and to understand. See a pain arise, maybe a tension in the back, or a strong pain in the shoulders, or in the knee, and see, watch the different strategies. Maybe we think, okay, they said there's a pain, go into it. Okay, I'm going to go into it, hoping that if I do that, it'll go away. So we can go into it, we go into it, and we see all kinds of things, but it doesn't go away, so maybe I withdraw. I'll avoid it. I'll really go to the breath now. I don't have to feel it. If it still doesn't help, and somehow the pain is still quite strong, I start to really resisting it, somehow tightening up, hoping that if we don't let allow ourselves to drop into it, we don't have to feel it. And then that doesn't work. Perhaps we start spacing out, thinking of something more pleasant. So if that becomes strong enough, then we won't have to feel it. We can forget about the pain. No matter how slight the displeasure, we tend to dislike it. It's probably natural, quite normal. And of course, no matter how slight the pleasure is, we like it, we love it. means that there's a constant reacting in the mind, which in a way is a constant imbalance. It's the holding and the wanting which is a little out of, it's a little leaning forward. And if you just imagine to be like that meditating or to go like that through life, it's just a little bit tiring. And the other half is to resist and to trying to get rid of it, then it's again falling out of that place of rest. And then it, since it keeps on going from pleasant to unpleasant and painful, we keep on falling out of balance. And we wonder why there is no rest, why there is no peace, why so tiresome. So this reaction, this wanting, or this wanting it to be different, which is what aversion or dislike really is, that's the next link in this pattern of mind we're looking at. Wanting, the craving, the thirst, which then escalates to grasping, wanting into grasping, into getting, in holding on to it desperately, proliferating in all, into all the unskillful actions and mind states connected to it, creating the negative karma we were talking about earlier. The not wanting, the aversion, that into the pushing away, into the fighting back, into the destroying, into the trying to annihilate that 
which is unpleasant. And again, all the unskillful action that comes with it, and all the negative karma that is created. We act, we create more difficult experience in the future. So there's this becoming and this new feelings to which we react. And it goes on and on and on and on. And there we go. That's what's called the wheel of samsara. The wheel of endlessly reacting. The wheel of suffering that keeps on turning. The Buddha once asked, which do you think is more the flood of tears which weeping and wailing you have shed upon this long way, hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth? This or the water of the four oceans? And he answered his own question by saying, Long have you suffered the death of father and mother, of sons, daughters, brothers and sisters. And whilst you were thus suffering, you have indeed shed more tears than there is water in the four oceans. And he goes on, How is this possible? It says, Inconceivable is the beginning of the samsara. Not to be discovered is any first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, by wanting, are hurrying through this round of rebirth. And thus have you long undergone suffering, undergone torment, and filled the graveyards full, truly long enough to be dissatisfied with all the forms of this warning and this craving and this going on long enough to turn away and to free ourselves from them all. It's a very powerful statement. And in a way it is pointing at the terrible and frightening reality. Also if you look outside, it's from this point of contact feeling, tone, and reaction, that all the suffering in the world arises, inside, obviously, and outside. It's the desire and the aversion that proliferates into all these other powerful negative, negative mind states or tendencies, uh, kleshas, as they're called in Buddhism, and Stephen will go into this tomorrow morning, I believe. Desire, greed, attachment, dinginess, envy, hatred, anger, fear, jealousy, stupidity, pride, distrust, you name it. This whole host of difficult tendencies in the mind. And it's because of this for no other reason. It's because of this that even to this day 40,000 children must die from hunger and malnutrition every day. Still every day. And not because there's not enough food. 
Some years the European community destroyed up to 20 million tons of butter, wheat and meat just to keep world market prices high. It's greed, it's exploitation, it's disrespect for life that kills. It's also because of this that still more than 30 wars and armed conflicts are going on in the world right now. And there have been enough peace talks. It's the blindness, the hatred, and the insensitivity that kills. That create tremendous suffering for all of life on earth. I feel we must ask ourselves does it have to be like that? Or is there another way? And to find out we must look into this process of reactiveness from where desire and greed and hatred and anger and all that arise. We must look into that very closely in ourselves, in our experience, in our meditation. To really see it working, start seeing it working very clearly. But this is really one of the most important tasks. And it's here that the healing of ourselves and of the world must begin. So, the senses, the contact, the feeling tone, that's the given. It's inevitable and it's fine the way it is. It's life. But do we need to go on reacting the way we've always done? And instead of not understanding, not even noticing this process, there is awareness. We start to clearly see what's going on. We start to understand. Then perhaps a different way of being might become possible. When at that point of the feeling tone, there's also awareness with it. We know what the feeling tone is, we're quite aware of what's going on, we're there for it, we don't run away from it, we're open, we're willing to experience it, even when it's difficult or unpleasant. And we start to see and understand that whole pattern, not even yet changing it, just clearly seeing and understanding that pattern. Then freedom starts to come in, then some space is possible. And being so tightly run by these forces might not be happening so much anymore. Understanding that process instead of being ignorant about it means there's wisdom, there is intelligent 
awareness that sees what's going on. The awareness which gives rise to insight and wisdom that is really the light or the lamp that dispels some of the darkness of that ignorance that we've been talking about. The darkness of not understanding. When there is awareness and seeing clearly at the point of contact and feeling with each experience, what does it reveal? A number of things that might become clear. One is that we might become aware of the tiresomeness of always having to react with attraction and aversion endlessly. We just see it happen over and over again and feel how that is. Instead of judging it and saying, no, okay, I should stop it, I shouldn't do it. It's to really see, feel it over and over again until somehow the mind says, God, I don't want to do that anymore. And it happens less and less. As we stay with those patterns, we start to clearly see the unskillfulness of the actions that come out of those reactions of desire and wanting and clinging and holding on and aversion and avoiding and destroying. And whether that's the endless fantasies and daydreams that we might be able to watch and observe as we sit here, or it's the ongoing judging and condemning mind, judging and condemning ourselves, judging and evaluating what's happening, each experience, this is right, this is wrong, this should, this shouldn't, and then to make up for it, judging and evaluating others. or. putting that into words, into speech, or even into actions. Just seeing how unhelpful, unwholesome, how much this is not what we really want in life. It becomes more and more clear as we bring awareness into it and just see it happen over and over again. That kind of reactiveness and dealing with the every moment experience loses its attractiveness. It does it makes less and less sense. We might also see through what Stephen mentioned the fact that pleasure or displeasure isn't the property of the object as we often think it is. And I think to become aware of that, it's very fascinating. Bird songs even aren't pleasant. It's the conditioning that makes our experience of them pleasant in general. But I seem to remember someone asking at one retreat, can't we close these windows with all these goddamn birds? 
So not even the birds are necessarily pleasant. It's somehow what we do to it, how it is received. But the one month retreat in Switzerland and our house was right right in the takeoff path of an army airport. I mean, you could see it in the distance and it was exactly pointing to us, almost exactly. And there we were practicing. And the army also was practicing. And it drove some people nuts. And I personally, I love it. You know, if I think of a lot of things that it means, I start to get to feel unpleasant about it. But just this tremendous, intense uh, sound that would come over us. I mean, it's amazing. So again, uh, people, a person isn't fundamentally nice or fun or pleasant. Again, it depends on our relationship to that person. Uh, to that person. When, when we fall in love, for example, it seems like this is really a property of that person. I mean, this person is far out. And we can see we can love somebody very much and then within three minutes the person says the wrong thing. And we think, God. So, it's to learn something about our attitude, about our relationship that we have to its experience. And it doesn't matter whether that experience is mind moments or situations or people, anything. As we see this process yet more clearly, we might start to become increasingly aware also of its insubstantiality. When we watch a movie on a screen, it's true, we, we react to what we see and what's going on, but we don't need to react compulsively. I don't know if you have ever gone into a movie theater in the third world, like I've been in Morocco or in India, or with small kids sometimes, you see this. Uh, you know, there's the evildoer, and they really start to sort of boo him down, you know, and get really upset or say, or warn them, you know, hey, watch out, behind you. And, you know, start clapping and banging on the chairs and on the neighbor's shoulders. Even throwing things, you know, like when they're really disappointed to throw things on shoes. To start to see how much we're doing that with experience, with every time an experience arises. And the freedom again is when we're not caught 
so much into the drama, into believing, into identifying what is going on, even when it's painful. We don't need to react so much anymore when we're fully present, when we're really alive to each moment and have enough openness to allow it to be what it is. It means when mindfulness really is present, equanimity isn't really so far. In some way, equanimity, allowing, acceptance, is like the other side of the same coin of real, genuine awareness. Equanimity that's open, that is spacious, allows things to arise and be what they are, willingness to accommodate any experience, that acceptance or softness of mind I mentioned the first night. And I'll repeat, it's that balanced state of mind that's free from attachment and aversion, free of that reactivity free of holding on to this or that. It's a state that's very awake and very alive and very open. It has nothing to do with indifference or a kind of flat, even, neutral state. It's rather very sensitive. Also perhaps quite vulnerable somehow because it lets itself, it allows itself to be touched by life. That willingness to be open, to be touched. So maybe that equanimity, that willingness to be open, that acceptance, somehow is related to grace. I'm not sure I'd like to look into that. It's being there and allowing life to unfold itself the way it is. It's not going out and doing so much about it and sort of telling how it should be. But it's really being so open and so receptive that things can unfold, can reveal themselves to us. I'd like to close with the old story of the monk and the samurai, which probably quite many of you have heard quite a few times, but it's such a wonderful illustration of equanimity, of that openness, and of the compassion that comes with it. 
a big tough samurai once went to see a little monk monk he said in a voice accustomed to instant obedience teach me about heaven and hell the monk looked up at this mighty warrior and he replied with utter disdain teach you about heaven and hell I couldn't teach you about anything you dirty your smell and your blade is rusty you're a disgrace and embarrassment to the samurai class get out of my sight I can't stand you and the samurai was furious and shook and he got all red in the face was speechless with anger and rage and he pulled out his sword and raised it above him preparing to slay the monk and that's hell said the monk softly so the samurai was overwhelmed and the compassion and surrender seeing the compassion and the surrender the openness that little man had offered his life to give him the teaching about heaven and hell and he slowly put down his sword filled with gratitude and suddenly peaceful and that's heaven said the monk softly I'd like to just sit quietly for a few minutes Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.